the rabbis say that when they destroy the first temple, the enemies entered into the Holy of Holies. And they saw that the cherubs, the Keruvim, were facing each other. Now, practically this conflicts with another account of the rabbis, as, which is quoted by Maimonides, that actually 30 years before the destruction of the temple, King Yoshio, the last righteous king from the line of Judah, from the, remaining, the only uh, remaining Jewish kingdom, because the ten tribes were exiled, in the times of Hosea, which was like 100 years before the destruction. This was like 30 years before the destruction. He hid, buried, he hid the ark with the tablets. He hid it underground, underneath the temple. When King Solomon built the temple, he built, he built a, um, a cellar that was part of the structure of the temple. Because King Solomon, by divine inspiration, knew that one day the temple would be destroyed. And this is the original ark that Moses made. They never made another ark. That was the original ark. So that ark was hidden. From that point on, there was never an ark. The second temple, there was no ark. The tablets weren't there. The ark wasn't there. It was empty. The Holy of Holies was empty. All you had was the stone, which is the foundation of the world. So there are conflicting midrashim. What happened if it was um, buried? Not buried. It was put under the cellar. But according to this version of the rabbis, the ark was there, and when the enemies came in, they saw the Keruvim were facing each other, which is very difficult to understand, because we know whenever the Jewish people did the will of Hashem, did the will of God, then the Keruvim were facing each other. It was like a boy and a girl. When they were not doing the will of Hashem, they faced away from each other. So how is it possible that at the moment of destruction, when Hashem is, Hashem is pouring out His wrath by destroying the temple, how is it possible at that moment, in the Holy of Holies, the Keruvim, with the angelic faces, or the faces of a boy and a girl, are facing each other? The Keruvim were the winged uh, on top of the ark, and they were facing each other. How is that possible? So obviously, there's something else. There's another dynamic going on that explains exile. It's not what it appears to be. The simple mechanics of exile, the technical mechanics of exile, is we say in prayer, in the Musaf prayer, we say, Because of our sins, we're exiled. It's a punishment. We sin, we messed up, and Hashem is punishing us. Right? Measure for measure, we have to live with the consequences of our actions, of our behavior, and it's a punishment. But if you think deeper into it, it doesn't make any sense. Because in punishment, the closer you are to the crime, the more severe the punishment. As you distance yourself from the crime, the punishment becomes less severe, diminishes. A person is in prison. When is the harshest sentence? Immediately. As time goes on, as he gets closer to his release date, you go through a transition. The sentence gets lighter, then you have parole, then you have you know, halfway house, and then you're, you're totally free. 
So th- there, are sta- there are stages. So if exile is merely a punishment, then logically, the most intense punishment, exile, sh- harshest part of the exile should have been immediately. As we get closer to the release date, as we get closer to the Mashiach, the exile should lighten, should get lighter and lighter. Yet look at Jewish history. The exact opposite is true. During the temp- temple, the destruction of a second temple, uh, let's say a million, a hundred thousand Jews lost their lives. But just 70 years ago, the biggest tragedy ever, six million Jewish men, women, and children were wiped out. The worst tragedy ever in Jewish history. So as we get, as we go deeper into the exile, the darkness only thickens. It gets darker and darker. It gets worse and worse. And then, we also have the spiritual exile, which also gets dark, increases, and deepens, and becomes darker and darker. Five years ago, the original date of the expulsion from Gush Katif was set for Tishabah by the Jewish Prime Minister. When he realized how PR-wise, how tragic it sounds that they're kicking out Jews on Tisha B'Av, so he pushed it off for a day. But he was right. His original date was right. Because this is Tisha B'Av. It's one thing if the Romans exile us, the Greeks exile us, the Babylonians exile us. But for a Jew to exile himself from his own home, this never happened before. In the annals of human history, you can't find a single example of any nation exiling itself and negotiating in its own capital. Is there a deeper, blacker, darker exile? Spiritual exile? As Ben-Gurion once said, it's easy to take the Jew out of exile, but it's difficult to take the exile out of the Jew. A Jew should be so alienated from himself, should be so self-hating, that he would, the very first mitzvah in the Torah is love your fellow Jew like yourself. Would you like someone to come to your house in Tel Aviv and destroy your house and destroy your livelihood? And for what? to appease some Arab Nazi who doesn't want to see a Jew in his face. So let's get this straight. A Jew can live in Berlin. A Jew can live in Moscow. A Jew can live anywhere in the world. The only place in the world a Jew is not allowed to live is in Israel. Because he's Jewish. In Israel. And this is called peace. And if not, if you, if you want to live, if you insist on your right to live anywhere in Israel, you're called a settler with the connotations that you're some gun-toting fanatic probably from Brooklyn. What? A Jew can't live? I'm not allowed to live here? They took sand dunes. No one ever settled there. It was, and the Jews turned it into a Garden of Eden, an oasis. And they were financially independent, a financial powerhouse. And here they were destroyed, their lives were destroyed. And it was meant to be on Tisha B'Av. Is there a darker exile? No nation on earth could be powerful enough or wealthy enough that it could afford to lose its soul. At that moment, Israel lost its soul. You can't survive without a soul. We can survive Hitler and Stalin, but you can't survive if you don't have a soul. If you can do this to your brother and your own sister, you are soulless. You are so dysfunctional. 
charity begins at home. The measure of a person is not how you treat strangers. It's how you treat your own brother and sister. A person who loves his neighbors but abuses his own brother and sister is completely dysfunctional. This person will not bring tikkun olam, will not bring mending or healing to anyone. This person is completely dysfunctional. So this is all, as the exile progresses, it becomes ever more darker, blacker, and shocking. If someone would have told you 10 years ago that Israel would kick out its own people and destroy you would laugh. You would laugh. It's like impossible. It's insanity. It's madness. And yet it happened. So as the exile progresses, it just gets darker and darker. Not lighter and lighter. So why? Obviously, the exile is not about punishment. There's something much deeper going on. Which also explains why the very first time Hashem communicated to the very first Jew with Abraham at the covenant, the Bris Absarim, is when Hashem made a covenant with Abraham and all his children forever. Abraham was 70 years old at the time. And at that moment of intense love and Hashem showed and revealed his intense love for Abraham and for the Jewish people. At that moment, he's discussing with him the exile. Hashem is discussing with Abraham the exile. Your children will go into exile and they will suffer and they will... At that moment of love, your first time you're talking to Abraham, this is the time to talk about exile and darkness and, and punishment. And, and obviously, obviously, exile has nothing to do with punishment. Take the very first exile, Egypt. How can Egypt, the exile in Egypt, be a punishment? The Jewish people didn't even exist yet. You can't punish someone before he even exists. The exodus from Egypt was the birth of the Jewish people. So obviously the very first exile tells us exile has nothing to do with punishment. So what is the meaning of exile? The great master, the great Hasidic master of Levitzka Bardisha gives a beautiful analogy. Let's use a modern, imagine... Professor Albert Einstein is communicating with his students and only the professor, the master himself, can teach children. Because only someone who's a true master can strip away all the complexities and communicate the essence of his wisdom in a way that even a five-year-old child can understand. The highfalutin professor in Columbia University could only talk in complex language and no one barely understands because he himself doesn't understand. You know, all the great classics in the world, all the great novels are written on a ninth grade level, including the Bible. Because it takes the master and the, the ultimate, the most brilliant classical works are written in a way that everyone could understand. All these complex books that put you to bed, put you to sleep, it's because they themselves have no clue what they're talking about. So they can only spit out what they, what they, what they don't really understand the subject matter. So that's why they have to camouflage it and hide it behind complexities and highfalutin words. It's, it's a, when you can't communicate and you can't explain, there's one reason, because you don't understand it. Very simple. If you truly understand, you can explain and you can communicate and you can strip away and get to the essence. So Einstein is teaching his students. So obviously, there's a huge difference between Einstein and his students. It's like night and day. This is Einstein. 
one in a hundred years, one in a thousand years, and he's teaching students. In the middle of the class, suddenly, Einstein has a eureka moment. All his life, he's been working on the unified theory. He died without figuring out the unified theory. Until today, no one figured out the unified theory. Whoever figures out the unified theory will become much more famous than Einstein ever was. It's much more profound. To unify quantum mechanics and relativity, one theory to explain everything. And he knew that there is a theory. There is. The deeper you go, the more you realize ultimately there's one, you reach that one. But he never, he never figured out, imagine, and one time he's sitting with his students giving a class, and suddenly, like a bolt of lightning, he gets it. The most dazzling insight he's ever had in his life. He's been working for this for decades. Only Einstein could appreciate the sweetness and the depth and how this will explain everything and this totally shatters and, and questions all the underlying assumptions of everything that we ever thought of about the most basic realities, time, space. He's just dazzled. But all it is is a concept. He doesn't yet have it in words. It's, it's, it's too overwhelming. He's working on this for decades. He just has that lightning, that flash, that, that, that sense but he, he still can't explain it yet. And immediately, he withdraws. He's not paying attention to the class. He's completely mesmerized and absorbed by this concept. He's sitting in the classroom. The students see him there. Bodily is there, but his mind is not present. In spirit, he's not there. He's not there. He's elsewhere. His mind is engaged. The students are clueless. They have no idea what happened to their beloved teacher, the beloved Einstein. He's always smiling, he's always patient. And here, they're talking to him and they're talking to the wall. He's just not there, he's not responding. He, he's like lost in a different world, he's lost in thought. After a while, they become discouraged. The spitball starts flying. <laughs> kids being kids. And, and Einstein is just becoming more and more withdrawn. And he's trying to grasp this concept. To get his mind around this concept to bring it into words, to be able to articulate it, to comprehend it. And the deeper he goes into the concept, the more withdrawn he becomes. Until there reaches a moment where the tension is unbearable. The student can't take it anymore because this teacher is there, he's not there. He's completely reaches a point where he becomes completely oblivious to them. He doesn't care about them anymore. Some think he hates them. He's ignoring them. They have no idea what's going on. They don't know what's going on inside. But at that moment, when the tension becomes unbearable, that's the moment when Einstein finally, finally grasps the concept, is able to articulate it into words. And the next moment, he's going to turn to his students with a huge smile. And he says, my dear children, let me share with you the most dazzling concept you've ever heard in your life. One that will blow your mind away and you'll be the first to hear it. And that's what was going on all the time. I couldn't talk to you then. I couldn't explain it to you. You wouldn't understand what I'm talking about. But I knew you would feel terrible. I knew you would feel abandoned. You would feel I don't love you. I don't care about you. I disappeared in you. But you have to know and you have to realize once you'll, I'll share with you you'll realize I did this out of my love to you. 
I wanted to be able to explain this to you, and the only way I could explain this to you is first I had to grasp it myself. And now, thank you for your patience, and now let me share with you. So, there are two things happening, there are two dynamics externally on the surface, mechanically. The teacher disappeared in them, doesn't like them, he's angry at them, and that's the way it appears. But internally, the inner dynamic was the exact opposite. The teacher was doing this out of his love for his students. And he was preparing, preparing for them the ultimate delicacy, the ultimate dish, the ultimate that will make all that temporary pain worthwhile. They won't even remember the temporary pain. And that's why the prophet compares the redemption to, to a birth. The exile is like birthing pangs. You know, the woman gives birth, she swears, I'll never have a child again. That's what my wife tells me. <laughs> That's one of the reasons that she has to bring a sacrifice. But of course, once you have this child, and the baby is born, and you have this life, and it's unpredictable, and who remembers very quickly the pain fades away, and then you're ready for your next. <laughs> what, what, pain, it wasn't about pain. You know, the maternity ward is the only part in the hospital where the patient is yelling and everyone is smiling and saying, Mazel tov. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it's not about pain. Of course, it's the most painful thing in the world. And that's why if men had babies, uh, there would be no human race. But, uh, but, that's, but that's, that's, not, that's not what it's about. And the pain quickly fades away. And then, what, how could you compare a life, a full life, with infinite possibilities and joys, with that pain? Yes, it's unbelievable when you're experiencing it. it, it, it there's nothing else. And it's, but it's nothing. When you look at it in perspective, that's temporary. And then it quickly fades away. And, and look. So it's about birthing pains. It's not about suffering. That's not what it's about. Giving birth is not about suffering. But when you bring something new into this world, when you give birth to something new, it's growing pains, birthing pains. And so too in your own personal life, whenever there's growing pains, whenever you have to stretch and grow and you have to graduate and you have to leap to the next level, instead of, instead of walking slowly, you have to like jump to the next level, there's growing pains involved. But again, it's not about the pain and the suffering. You're breaking out of your boundaries. You're bringing something new into this world. So, so, too, for the birth of the Jewish people. Egypt were the growing pains to enable a birth of a new people, not just another nation. There are 70 nations, so Hashem made a 71st nation. The world didn't need another nation. The UN didn't need another seat. It wasn't about just adding another nation. It was a different type of nation, a miraculous nation, a divine nation, a godly nation. So to give birth to something like that, to something new into this world, you had to go through the birthing pangs. It's not about pain. That's why Hashem, while he's speaking to Avram, the very first time he's speaking to the very first Jew, the uh, treaty of love, the Brisbane Absarim, he's expressing his unconditional love for the Jewish people forever and ever. And here he's talking how they're going to suffer, they're going to go into Egypt in the first concentration camp, they're going to suffer for 210 years. It's not, he says, 400 years. It wasn't, that's not, it's not about, because internally it's not about pain, suffering, punishment. It's birthing pangs. Hashem says you're going to give birth to something new into this world 
And that's why you're going to have to go through labor pain. And this explains what the Talmudic rabbis say, that when the enemies entered into the Holy of Holies, what did they see? They saw the Keruvim were facing each other. Because externally, on the outside, mechanically, yes, Hashem was, Hashem's wrath, Hashem was pouring out His wrath. He was destroying, it was anger, it was the Jewish people sinned and they were being punished. And, but internally, from the Holy of Holies, the inner, innermost chambers, the innermost perspective, what was going on? The exact opposite. They were facing each other. It was the ultimate act of love, internally. There was such an intense light, such an intense revelation. And this brought about the destruction. It wasn't about punishment. It was that intense revelation. Hashem removed Himself because, just like in the analogy, Einstein suddenly removed himself because Einstein was getting, preparing himself to reveal a new breakthrough, a new dynamic re- re- revelation. And that led to the withdrawal. So internally, the withdrawal was the ultimate act of love. It wasn't an act of anger or hatred on the country. Which explains a very fascinating aspect of Tishabov. In the Eicha, in the Book of Lamentations, written by Jeremiah, he refers to Eicha as a holiday, Mayet. And this is expressed halachically. On Tisha B'av, we don't say Tachanun. We don't confess. You would think Tisha B'av is a day of mourning, a day of destruction. If there's any day in the wee year we should say Tachanun and confess our sins, it should be on Tisha B'av. And yet, no. Halacha says, here we are, we're fasting. And yet, the Torah says, Halacha says, no mourning. And also, Maimonides says, the Talmud says, a Mashiach will come. It says in the, in, the, in the prophets, Mashiach will come. The fast days will turn into holidays. Not only will the fast days be nullified, there will no longer be any fast days, there won't be any reason to fast, with the exception of Yom Kippur, which is not a sad day. Yom Kippur is, commemorates Hashem's forgiveness, which is a, a, a very meaningful and uplifting day, cleansing day. But the fast days, all the fast days that are associated with tragedy, Jewish tragedy, they will come to an end. Not only will they come to an end, but they will turn into holidays, which if you think about it, it makes no sense. What's the great holiday? That Jews suffer? It's bad enough, okay, so we don't have to fast anymore. Thank God we don't have to fast anymore. There won't be any reason to fast because Mashiach will be here. But why will we celebrate? What's the great celebration? It was Holocaust, that the temple was destroyed. That we're exiled. What's the big simcha exactly? What's the great celebration? It's not the exodus from Egypt or, or a miracle. We're, we're talking about the most tragic days in Jewish history. We're going to celebrate the Yom Tishabav. The spies, they weren't allowed to go into the desert. Moses ended up dying in the desert. First temple destroyed. The second temple destroyed. Uh, Bar Kokhba's revolt was, was ended on, on, on Tishabav. Betar was destroyed. So what's, what's, the great, what's the, great, uh, the great holiday exactly? Jerusalem was plowed. The simple explanation is that had the Jewish people not sinned with the spies, the sin of the spies, what would have happened? The spies came home. Imagine a different scenario. The spies came back. 
And the Jews did not buy the stories of the spies, or the spies came back and said, let's go, we can do it, come. And the Jew says, okay, let's pack, we're all packed, we're ready to move. What would have happened? Mashiach would have come. Moses would have led them into the land, they would have built the temple, and that would have been it. It would have transformed human consciousness, changed the whole world. Don't forget, the world was in awe of the Jewish people. Single-handedly, they brought down the world's superpower. Egypt was completely buckled and, and surrendered. and the, the whole world was paying attention to Moses and the Jewish people. They could have single-handedly transformed, elevated all the Goyim, teach them the seven Noahide laws. The whole world would have been transformed. Mashiach would have come. So Tisha B'av, oh, from day one, had great potential. Great potential for greatness. And instead, we ended up with the greatest tragedy, because it's the downfall. The greater the person, the greater the downfall. A giant, it's like a spiritual giant that falls. The greater the person, the greater the downfall. So the greater the day, the potential of the day, the greater the tragedy. So Tisha B'Av had such great potential. This is the day that the Jewish people could have finished the deal. And if they only had their act together, and they didn't, ends up being one of the most tragic days ever in Jewish history. The same thing the 17th day of Tammuz. If they would have come and they wouldn't have worshipped the golden calf again, Mashiach would have come. They would have gone straight into Israel. So it's another fast day, the 17th day of Tammuz. So all of this, that's a simple explanation. But a deeper, deeper explanation is, as Rabbi Levitzuk Badichov explained, using the analogy that on a deeper level, what is really going on internally something very powerful, profoundly powerful is happening inside. The exact opposite of what's happening on the surface. On the surface, all we're experiencing is darkness and negativity and harshness. But internally, what's going on? It's the ultimate act of love. It's the ultimate act of intimacy. Hashem loves us so much that He's ready to inconvenience us for a few moments, knowing that He's preparing for us something so special preparing for us the third temple the ultimate redemption there'll never be another exile there's no reverting back into exile this is it not like the other redemptions which are temporary this redemption is permanent a redemption that will completely transform the world transform human consciousness Hashem is preparing for us something so profound and that's why He's allowing us to, to suffer temporarily so internally it's the ultimate act of Hashem's love and internally while we're suffering there's something very powerful profound is happening and that's why when Mashiach does come finally does come all this will emerge and then we'll realize Tisha B'av wasn't a tragedy it wasn't about tragedy it wasn't about harshness it wasn't about pain and suffering and anger and wrath that's not what it's about on the contrary, it was the ultimate revelation, the ultimate intense revelation, the crew of them facing each other. Hashem was, pre- was preparing for us. And all of that will emerge and surface and will be revealed on Tisha B'av. And that's why these three weeks, from the 17th day of Thomas, which begins the three weeks, the first fast day to the second fast day, the ninth of Av, these three weeks will become the most joyful three weeks in the Jewish calendar. Till, just like we have Rosh Hashanah through Hashanah Rabbah, also three weeks. You have all these holidays. These three weeks will become the new 
most intense, most powerful, most joyful part of the year. These three weeks will be marked by holidays. We'll start with a holiday on the 17th day of Tammuz, which the Arizal, the greatest Kabbalist that ever lived, says something unbelievable. It says in the Torah that Aaron, when he realized the Jews tried to force him to make the idol, he tried to delay them. So he says, let me make it. Give me all the gold. He thought, bring me all the jewelry. He tried to get a Jew to part from his jewelry. So it'll take a day or two until by the time they bring all the jewelry, Moses will come back already. Moshe will come back. Well, the women had no partner. The women refused. They wanted, wanted no part of the golden calf, so they refused. The men immediately, quickly, took up all the jewelry. Within moments, he had all the jewelry he needed. So he says, you know, it's late now. Tomorrow. He says, Chag Hashem Mocher. A holiday for Hashem tomorrow. He was hoping... Jews till they wake up, <laughs> till they drink their coffee, till they get the act together, till they come to troll. By the time they'll come around to the Kiddush, Moshe will be here already at noon. But they woke up at dawn. You can never get them up at dawn. Here they were up at dawn and, and they sin with the golden cap. But Arizal says, Aaron told the truth. When he said, tomorrow there'll be a holiday. He meant tomorrow, as the Torah says, there's tomorrow that's tomorrow and there's tomorrow in the future. Tomorrow, Mashiach comes. This day will be a holiday because all the fast days will turn around into holidays. So this day, the day that they worship the golden calf, the worst sin ever in history, after the sin of the first sin, the Eitzadaz of the tree of knowledge, this day will be transformed into the greatest holiday. Chag literally a holiday. Because again, what's happening internally is the exact opposite of what's happening externally. Externally, it's disaster, tragic, dark, black, painful. But internally, it's the exact opposite. Hashem is growing closer to us. Hashem, the withdrawal just means that Hashem is it's the ultimate act of love. Hashem is really drawing closer to us and is really preparing the ultimate revelation. Which also explains halachically why was Hashem allowed to destroy the temple? You know, God practices what He preaches. One of the 613 mitzvot that we're going to read in the next two weeks is you're not allowed to destroy a holy place. So how can Hashem destroy His temple? And the answer is, you're not allowed to destroy if you're destroying. But if you're renovating, (laughs) you're destroying the temple not to rebuild the same temple. Then you're not allowed to. What's the point? but to rebuild something much bigger, better. So the temple was destroyed to make way, to pave the way for a bigger and better temple. Because the third temple that Hashem has in mind, this temple will last forever. So the moment of destruction, as the Talmud says, that moment, Mashiach was born. Because really, what was really going on internally, it's because it's all about Mashiach. Hashem had this, Hashem is appearing a much, much greater level, a much higher level, and the old level was too straightjacketed. It, it was too narrow. And therefore, we had to break out of our boundaries. And we had to go through these birthing pangs in order to give birth to something new, which explains the logic of exile, just like when you give birth. In the beginning, the pain is not so terrible, and then as you get closer and closer, 
And as you get very close, then the pain becomes unbearable. And so too, as we get closer and closer to the last moment, the actual birth of Mashiach. As the previous Rebbe said, the, the, the Holocaust, this is, these are the birthing pangs of Mashiach. It, it's so unbearable, it's so, it's so beyond comprehension that these are the birthing pangs of Mashiach. And the spiritual suffocating exile, the self-hating Jew that we see today in such display, which is so, you know, when was the last time you met a self-hating Irishman, a self-hating Italian? You know, only Jews. So this inner exile, which is so black, it's so dark, it's so painful. How can a person hate himself so much? How can a person be so alienated from his own soul, from his own being, from his own core, from his own essence? How could you violently be opposed to your own essence? You're so Jewish. In your rebellion, you're so Jewish. If it wasn't tragic, it would be funny. As you're trying to run away and trying to be like everyone else, you're just proving how Jewish you are, how abnormal you are, how different you are, how you're not like anyone else, you never will be, and no one will ever accept you as being otherwise. And so, but this is the most painful darkness, but this is, these are the birthing pangs. Right before the baby is born, it literally becomes unbearable. And that's when you know the baby is about to be born. And it reminds me of this story, this very cultured... Uh, cultured woman whose parents send her to university in Europe and, and uh, she was giving birth to her first baby so she goes to the hospital with her mother she has the finest doctors the best hospitals and she's in her room and then she starts yelling in a beautiful eloquent French doctor come I'm giving birth please the doctor is talking to the mother and he's ignoring ignoring the you know the, the, the daughter the mother says my daughter's about to give birth says, no 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 not yet. <laughs> Half hour later, she yells out in French, beautiful, eloquent French, Doctor, come. He ignores her. The mother says, go, frantically. My daughter's about to give birth, please. No, no, nothing. And then a half hour later, she gives a yell in Yiddish, Oi, give out! <laughs> and the doctor says, now. <laughs> nothing fancy, nothing sophisticated, just that, Oi! That, oh, yeah, when you reach that point where you just can't take it anymore and it's unbearable, that's when you know that the baby is about to be born. So when the darkness reaches such a point, when we reached, we're talking about Holocaust, and we're talking about spiritual Holocaust, and we're talking about physical, you know, when it become, reaches a point where it becomes so unbearable, that's when you know, when the teacher seems to be the most withdrawn, absent, withdrawn. We don't feel the presence, we don't sense the presence. We don't see miracles. Hashem took, took the Rebbe away from us, physically. At this moment of darkness, when it's, when it's the darkest, the darkness is the most intense, that's when you know that the next moment, the teacher is going to turn around. And he says, my children, my children, let me share with you the most dazzling, the most brilliant, the most earth-shattering, illuminating thing. Let me share with you. And once I share this with you, you'll understand what was going on from the moment of destruction. It wasn't about destruction. It wasn't that I was angry, wrath. That's not what it's about. Punishment. That has nothing to do with exile. That's not what it's about. That's the mechanics of exile. That's the technical mechanics. That's external, superficial. Let me 
let me share with you what was going on, really going on inside, the inner dynamics. And Hashem will share with us the most beautiful revelation of godliness, which will be manifest with the third temple. And then we'll look back, and it says we're going to thank Hashem. Isaiah the prophet says we're going to thank Hashem for all the tsars. Imagine, we're going to thank Hashem. It's unfathomable. How can we thank Hashem? All the Yiddish Tzars. Thank. All this pain. All this suffering. And the Jew is the heart of the world. And we're the first ones to suffer. You know, as Elie Wiesel says, the uh, Hindus say, if you've suffered, you've suffered before. Because they believe in reincarnation. You know, the Buddhists say, suffering, you're not really suffering. It's just an illusion. The Zen say, experience your suffering. <laughs> the Catholics say, if you suffer, you deserve it. <laughs> the Protestants say, if you suffer, let someone else suffer. And the, and the Jews say, why do, we, why do we always have to be the one that's doing the suffering? And we're going to thank Hashem for all the suffering. At this moment, at this time, at this day, at this moment, as of 8 p.m. Tuesday, it's not even fathomable. How can we thank Hashem? In the year 5,770, Mashiach hasn't come yet. It's unfathomable. How can we thank Hashem for suffering, all this terrible suffering, this anguish and this ordeal that we're going through? No nation on earth suffered like the Jewish people. No nation on earth had a holocaust. No nation on earth had two temples destroyed, exiled, the crushing anti-Semitism that we experience till today. So but when Mashiach comes, Isaiah says we're going to thank Hashem because the revelation will be so intense. As in the analogy, we'll look back and we'll say, you know what, if this is what it took to get us here, it was all worthwhile. Like, if this is what it took to give us this baby, I'll do it again. <laughs> now we can't even fathom it. And Hashem doesn't want us to fathom it. As the Rebbe once said, because if a Jew was able to fathom it today, have some inkling, some clue, some illumination, some idea of how we're going to thank Hashem for the suffering, then we wouldn't pray for Mashiach sincerely. Because we would say, hey, the suffering, there's meaning to the suffering. Suffering has purpose. We can live with it. Hashem wanted a Jew to genuinely cry for Mashiach. So this is the one area that a Jew has no clue. We have no inkling. With all our understanding and all our learning, after all the explanations are said and done, we still have no clue why do we have to go through such suffering. Because ultimately, God could do anything. He's not straightjacketed to do anything. God's created the world. So why did he set up the world, the system, in such a way that the only way to give birth is through this terrible pain and suffering? Why didn't he create the world that we can have a birth and it should be pleasant. Why does a birth, birthing have, always have to be accompanied with such birthing pangs and pain and anguish and unbearable pain? Why? There's no, we can't explain it. These are the facts. That's the way God set up the system. But God is not straightjacketed. He created the world. He created the logic and the rules of the world. He could have created the world differently. And that's what a Jew does when he prays. Whenever, whenever we pray, what are we praying for? Prayer makes no sense. The fatal, fatalism appears to be the most logical, logical belief. If you believe in God, God knows what he's doing, then you have to accept whatever God does. 
the Islamic approach, Islam comes from the word surrender, seems to be the most logical, fatalistic, whatever God wants will happen. What's the point in trying to change God's mind? That's, that's what faith is. God loves us more than we love ourselves. You have to tell a, a child has to pray to its parent, to his parent, please feed me. You don't think the parent feels the hunger pains of the child more than the child himself? So, so why are we praying? We have to tell God that we're in pain. God knows better than us. He feels our pain. He suffers more than we do. He suffers with us. Obviously, if we're going through a painful thing, it's growing pains. It's, it's, it's like, a, you know, this is a necessary... It's like an operation sometimes. You know, you have to, say, to save the patient. You have to cut. You have to do something painful. You have to give a needle. It hurts. But it's, it's ultimately for our benefit. That's what faith is. If you have faith in God, God is good. Whatever God does is good. And for our good. And it's personal. It's not just... Just happens. There's no such. There's no such things. No accidents in life. Everything is divine providence down to the tiniest detail. That's faith. And yet Jews pray. It's a mitzvah to pray. And we have to storm heaven and earth, change the decree, and we're praying for Mashiach every day. Three times a day. Sixty times every day, from morning to evening, every single day. Why? Why this persistence? Why are we praying for Mashiach? Hashem knows what He's doing. God knows what he's doing. It's his world. He's running the world. He's in charge. He's in control. Obviously, it's for our good. It's a beautiful story. Parable given by I'm sorry, by the Ruzhin, another great Hasidic master. The Ruzhin Rebbe, Rabbi Srol of Ruzhin, was very close friends to the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the grandson of the, the Balatanya, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he asked the question, since we've just learned, and Hasidus explains at great length, that the longer the exile, the greater the ultimate revelation, which is why this exile is so long, it's taking so long. Because the baby that's about to be born is so, so special. The ultimate redemption, the, the, the most spectacular redemption the world has ever experienced. So it takes a long time. The first redemption, only, they only had to be in exile for 210 years. After the destruction of the first temples, they were in exile for 70 years. Here we are in exile close to 2,000 years. Because to prepare for the ultimate redemption that there will never be another exile, and the ultimate temple, there will never be another destruction, and the whole world will be transformed. Not only the Jews will be transformed. The first redemption only affected the Jewish people. It destroyed the world. It destroyed the Egyptians. And it redeemed the Jewish people. Mashiach is not going to destroy the world. Mashiach will redeem and elevate all the 70 nations of the world, with the exception of the Amalekites, the, the Hamanijans of the world, the Arafats of the world, the core, the hardcore, absolute evil of the world, they will be destroyed. But the good people, 70 nations of the world, 6 billion people, all races, all colors, all nationalities will be elevated. So for such a redemption, it takes a long time to prepare for such a redemption. That's why we've been, that's why it's taking so long. So why the urgency? Why are we praying with such urgency that we need Mashiach now? When we understand the exile. And he gave a beautiful analogy. He says, there was once a Jewish peasant Jewish farmer. He grew up in his farm, never left his farm, never went to synagogue once in his life. His older age, his wife tells him, my husband, soon you're going to meet your creator, your maker. 
You've never been to Shul all your life. You have to go. The high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, you must go to Shul. Fine. So he leaves his farm, goes to the shtetl, and goes to Shul Rosh Hashanah. He doesn't even know how to hold the prayer book. You know, he's never, he doesn't read Hebrew. He doesn't know anything. He's never been to a synagogue. But he sees everyone is praying fervently. And then in the middle of the prayer, he sees that all the adults around him are crying. Start crying. Because it's very stirring. The prayers of the high holidays, very stirring. The cantor singing and the prayers. And it's the holiest day of the year. And it's the beginning of the year, setting the tone for the whole year. And, but he doesn't understand it. He's never seen adults cry. I don't get it. No one is beating them up. Why are they crying? And he's thinking and he's thinking in his peasant mind. And he's thinking and finally he figures it out. And he starts crying. He joins in the crying. What is it? What did he figure out? He says, very simple. Such a long prayer. Everyone is hungry. <laughs> praying and praying and praying. There's no end in sight. The hungry. And he also realizes how hungry he is. He starts crying. Then suddenly the, the crying stops. So he doesn't understand. Why did you stop crying? We didn't eat. <laughs> I thought we're hungry, and we are. So again, he's working feverishly with his peasant mind, and finally figures it out. And he stops crying, and he even starts smiling. He says, yes, of course we're hungry. But the longer the chicken cooks in the pot, the tastier it'll be. So it's worthwhile to sacrifice a little, suffer a little, because the reward will be so much more rewarding. Fine. All of a sudden, it comes the blowing of the shofar, and the whole shul breaks out crying. Sound of the shofar. Now he's totally lost. He says, I, I, I'm lost. I don't get it. I understand we're hungry. And we just got hungrier because another hour passed by. But we made up. We're adults. We decided... Let's wait a little, and the longer the chicken will cook, the better it'll taste. That's why we're crying. And he's thinking, and he's thinking, and he's nodding his, 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 his brow, and he's thinking, and finally figures it out, and he joins the crying, and he starts crying. He says, true, the longer the chicken cooks, the better it tastes. But we can't wait. <laughs> we can't wait. And he plots, and he cries. He says the same thing with the Jew with the exile. Yes, we know all the explanations that the longer the exile prolongs, it's only because Hashem is preparing such a delicacy, such a revelation. The more intense, the greater will be the revelation. But a Jew reaches a point where he plots us. He can't take it anymore. Enough. Enough is enough. We're only human. God created us human. The fact that we have faith and we believe that God is in charge of this world, God is in control of the world, and you, know, you don't lift a pinky unless it's decreed in heaven. Nothing happens in this world without Hashem. Down to the tiniest blade of grass, everything is guided by divine providence. But at the same time, it's also divine providence that we're human. God created us human. That's also divine providence. And at the human level, it hurts. Faith doesn't take away the human pain. So while I believe, because I believe, that's why I'm in pain. That's why I cry out to Hashem. I say, Hashem wants me to feel pain. That means something is wrong. It's a signal. Just like when you're physically in pain, your body is telling you something is wrong. The pain, what we feel, tells us, signals that something is wrong with this picture. This is not what Hashem wants. When Hashem created the world, the world was a Garden of Eden. At Mount Sinai, once again, the world became a Garden of Eden. And Mashiach will come, the world will 
become a garden of Eden. So pain, suffering, there's something upside down about this whole picture. This whole picture is crooked, it's distorted. We can't make peace with this picture. We're restless. We have to storm heaven and earth. We have to fast. We have to pray. We have to give tzedakah. We have to do mitzvot. We have to avert the terrible decree. We're not fatalistic. We have to become active and storm heaven and do something about it and change this terrible decree. So that's on one level. And the deeper level, it's because we have faith in Hashem. So yes, faith tells us that whatever Hashem does is good. He is good, whatever He does is good. And it's for our good, for our sake. And if there was any other way to achieve the ultimate goal without this pain, even without our prayer, Hashem would never allow us to suffer. If there was any other way to save the patient without operating, we'd never operate. So if we're going through this painful operation, obviously it's, Hashem knows that this is for our good and it's, it's, it's worthwhile. And there's no other way. So why are we praying? And the answer is because when it comes to Hashem, there's nothing impossible. We are limited. There's no other way because we have to operate within the system. But God created the system. And He's not straight-jacketed by any system because He created logic and He created rules. And Hashem could change all the laws of the universe. So we're asking Hashem to do something that only God can do. Do the impossible. Where prayer is we're asking Hashem to do the impossible. We're connecting with the essence of Hashem where all rules and all laws simply melt away. There are no rules, there are no laws. Hashem can do anything. And the impossible can happen. And that's the power of prayer. Through prayer, through trust in Hashem, by connecting with the essence of Hashem, we can achieve the impossible. That not only the end will be good, but even the means how we get there should also be good. So we're asking Hashem, please, why do we have to go through this pain and suffering? Whatever you're trying to accomplish, whatever you try to accomplish through a holocaust, you could try to accomplish it through a positive way. How? What? When? Where? It's impossible. So do the impossible. You're God. So when you have that level of trust, and you have that level of prayer, of connection with Hashem, then you can pull off the impossible. And that's why all the explanations in the world, ultimately, ultimately make no sense, because Hashem created all these rules and laws in the first place. Why did Hashem have to create that labor and giving birth has to be so painful? It could have been something... Why does it have to be painful? Why does everything have to be so painful? It could have been something very beautiful and sweet and positive. And now we have no clue. We have no inkling. We don't even have a, a, a light, a glimmer of an answer. And Hashem wanted it that way because He wants us to genuinely pray for Mashiach. If there was even an inkling, a hint of an answer, of an explanation, then we would say, what's the urgency? What's the rush? Exile? What's so terrible? We can live with another day of exile, another moment of exile. God forbid another week, another month, another year, another lifetime. My children, what's the deal? My parents didn't see Mashiach, my grandparents didn't see Mashiach. Okay. You know, it's, you know when someone said it's in the future and always will be, God forbid. Hashem wanted a Jew to live with that sense of urgency, that exile is intolerable even for another moment. So with all the explanations, ultimately there is no explanation. And only when Mashiach will come, only then will we look back and we'll be able to thank Hashem. We'll say, thank you, Hashem. Now I understand. Now, now it makes sense. 
and it was all worthwhile. This is what it took to get here. Destruction and exile and pogroms and as unfathomable as it is for us today, when Mashiach will come, the revelation will be so intense, so profound. Just like in the analogy with Einstein, that unified theory that will shatter and blow your mind away and will, will just dazzle you and you know, everything you understood till now, all the physics that we have till now, we'll have to throw out. I mean, this is compared to our new understanding. It will completely challenge, transform our whole understanding of everything. So Mashiach will be such a transformation, such a core transformation. It will touch us in such a deep, profound way, in ways that we can't even begin to fathom, that then we'll look back and we'll say, this is what it took. These were the birthing pains. It was all that, that explains how Mashiach will come will actually be a holiday. Tisha B'Av will be the greatest holiday. Not only will it no longer be a day of mourning, of sadness, but it will actually be a day of joyful celebration. Because that's really what it was all about all the time, even now. And just knowing that gives us the strength. That's why even while we're fasting, it's called a holiday and we don't say Tachanon. Here we're fasting, we're mourning, and we don't say Tachanon. It's a holiday. Because the Jew has to remember this is what keeps the faith, what helps us keep the faith, even in exile, even in the darkest moments, that internally Hashem loves us. Not like the Goyim tell us and taunt the Jew that God unchose you. You don't get it, doesn't love you anymore. He hated you, he despised you, he kicked you out of his temple, he kicked you out of his home. You don't get it, he doesn't love you anymore. He, he chose someone else. And the Jew says, no. Nothing could be further than the truth. Exile is the ultimate act, expression of God's love for the Jewish people. And that's why exile is so ripe with potential. It's not about negativity. It's so ripe with potential. The potential that we have to get close to Hashem in exile and through exile. And it's only when we utilize the exile and all this ripe potential and we actualize this potential, that prepares us for the Mashiach. That prepares the world. That creates Mashiach. When we serve Hashem, instead of being discouraged, instead of being with our heads low, instead of, on the contrary, it only we realize that it's the ultimate act of Hashem's love, the ultimate expression of Hashem's love for us, the deepest love, the most meaningful love, the most profound love, the most adult type of love, the most mature type of love that Hashem has for us. He loves us so much that He's willing for us to go through this temporary, painful moment just for our goodness, just for our sake. When we realize how much Hashem loves us, we can't help but be proud Jews, hold our heads up high. We only become more dedicated and more committed and more Jewish and more godly and more passionate and more joyful about our Jewishness. And we celebrate it joyfully. And, and as we celebrate our Jewishness by studying more Torah and doing more mitzvot and loving each other even more and bringing goodness and kindness to the whole entire world, and, and elevating the whole entire world, including the non-Jewish world, and teaching them about the seven Noahide laws, this is the preparation that will prepare for the revelation, and this is what creates and brings about this tremendous revelation and transformation of the coming of Mashiach. May Hashem help that this Tisha B'Av should be the last day of fasting in Jewish history, last day of mourning, and from now on, we won't have to talk about all these concepts. We'll actually experience the ultimate redemption, uh, the, the complete redemption, the rebuilding of the Third Temple, the ingathering of the exiles, and the entire world 
being the godly world that it was meant to be, that it once was, and inevitably, imminently, will become once again any moment. Any questions, comments, thoughts? You don't have to agree with anything that was said. <laughs> Two Jews, three opinions. Since we understand that Hashem is everything and everything is Him, so we should be able to ask Him for the impossible because there's no boundaries. But should we ask Him for the impossible all the time? Like, is it. Is it sane to ask him for the for the impossible? Is it something that he wants, or did he also make the rules? Because we need to understand that that's it. Because he also made the rules, so there's a contradiction there. What are the questions that are asked about prayer? You know, you ask Hashem to heal me. Now says in the Torah if you will follow the ways of the Torah then you will be blessed if not, you won't be blessed we know ourselves better than anyone else we can answer that question personally and honestly are we following the ways in the Torah? are we living up to our personal individual potential? are we sleeping on the job? so what do you mean you're asking Hashem do you deserve it? have you earned it? Why are you asking Hashem? And then you have the whole concept of trust. Trust in Hashem. You're confident that things will be good. Why are you so confident? Do you deserve it? Why Hashem is Hashem... What do you mean? You press a button and uh, you know, Hashem has to give you whatever you want? I mean, what's... And the answer is, trust is not passive. Trust is very active. If you really live on that level, if you are able to experience a level of trust, such trust in Hashem, then miracles can happen. It's like the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe once described. You know what trust is? It's like in God we trust, we have a trust fund. If you know that you're expecting money, knowing it is one thing, but touching it in your fingers, in your hand, is another thing. Until you have it in your hand and you can touch it, it's not the same. You know it's coming, when you have it, then you feel secure. He says, you know what trust in Hashem is? That before you have the money, and after you have the money, is the same. Before you have the money, you're so certain that you're going to have the money. But when you have it, I already had it. What's the big deal? I, I knew I had it. If you can reach such a level of trust, you'll get the money. <laughs> because if you trust in Hashem in such a level, so trust is not just passive. Okay, Hashem, I trust you. Okay, when is the miracle happening? If you have such a genuine, and Hashem is genuine, that's his name, <laughs> that's, his, that's his seal. So you can't kid Hashem. This is not Hollywood, this is reality. Hashem looks into a Jew's heart. If you can reach such a level of genuine trust in Hashem, then yes, then miracles can happen. And prayer is asking for the impossible, because if you ask, if based on faith, what do you mean you're sick, you're asking Hashem to get better? It's already good. Everything Hashem does is good. That's faith. So, so what, what are you praying for? But trust is that you want the things should be tangibly good. Physically good. Obviously good. And it's a mitzvah to pray. Hashem wants us to pray. Any Jew who tells you, who am I to pray Mashiach should come? What insolence? What chutzpah? 
I'm going to tell God how to run his world? Doesn't he know better when to bring Mashiach? But a Jew who tells you that is a heretic. Oh, when it comes to you healthy, do we also say the same thing? Who am I to tell God to make me healthy? God, in his infinite wisdom, made me sick. He must know what he's doing. God, bring it on. <laughs> Could you imagine? When you pray for, for, for healing, personal healing, you pray, I need it yesterday. When you pray for livelihood, I need to be rich yesterday. I have to pay all my bills. So when you pray for Mashiach, you have to pray with the same urgency. That's why the rabbis instituted prayer. This is for real. You're standing in front of Hashem. You think this is a, this is a child's game? We're, we're mouthing words. We're playing games here? This is for real. Hashem, I need Mashiach now. I can. And how many prayers are there for, for health? One. How many prayers are there to earn a living? One. How many prayers are there for the coming of Mashiach? Five. Every Shemunesrei. The urgency. It's more important than anything else because it includes everything else. So, Hashem wants us to pray. He doesn't want us to be passive. We're not, we're not Islamists. We're not, uh, we're not the fatalists. Hashem wants us to storm heaven. He wants us to be aggressive. The Jews are very active. Doctors will tell you that Jews are from the most optimistic patients because they have this incredible faith that things will change. No matter what the doctor says, no, things will change and change for the better and they don't give up hope. It's ingrained in our DNA. We don't take no for, no for an answer. Doctors were not given permission to, to, to give death sentences. Doctors were given permission to heal. Other than that, he's not a doctor. Who is he to give a death sentence? He's, he's Hashem's emissary to bring healing to the world. That's all he was given permission to do. So Jews are optimistic. They're, they're, they're filled with hope. And they believe in change. I don't know if you remember the shooting in the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, when Ari Halberstam tragically was shot to death when the yeshiva students on the way back from visiting the Rebbe when the Rebbe was in the hospital in 1992 and uh, he was shot and his friend there's a whole uh, van full of teenagers yeshiva boys and they named the ramp the Ari Halberstam ramp and the Brooklyn Bridge that ramp and his colleague was also shot severely wounded the doctors gave his chances of survival, gave him a 2% chance of survival. Two. Two. Sasunkin, his name was Sasunkin. And the mother had a press conference outside the hospital. She called all the press. And she says, I have complete faith that my son will be healed. Doctors have no permission to give death sentences. The doctors were listening to this press conference. They, they told later, and they were wondering, what's wrong with this woman? These were the best doctors in the world who dealt with this. And statistically, they've never seen a single case recover. And in the world, 2% recovered. In their mind, the only conclusion was that she's setting them up for a, uh, to, to sue the hospital. So she's creating a big publicity stunt that I was expecting my son to get healed and the doctors killed my son because of negligence. I mean, they, they, what is this woman talking about? Not only did he walk out of the hospital, got married, you know, he, he still has uh, some issues, but he's a miracle, a walking miracle. That's the power of prayer. That's the power of trust. That's the impossible. What happened with that boy was the impossible. The doctors weren't wrong. 
but it was the power of trust in Hashem, the power of that faith. It was so powerful of a prayer. That's what, that's what prayer is. We're asking Hashem to do the impossible. So we're asking for Mashiach. But what if the answer is no? After the fact, then we have faith. Before the fact, we storm heaven and earth. After the fact, that's faith. That's when faith kicks in. We don't understand Hashem. Hashem is unfathomable. His mind is unfathomable. And like we discussed today, it's not about punishment. In our world, everything what appears to be harsh and negative and painful, from Hashem's perspective, it's not pain, it's not harsh. It's, on the contrary, it's, it's the ultimate act of love. It's the exact opposite of what it appears to be. From a higher point of view, it's a whole different perspective. And we can't fathom Hashem's mind. We can't fathom him and we can't fathom his mind. And we understand that. We accept our limitations. How much is 365 times 473? No one. So we can't even figure that out. We can figure out life. So, I mean, well, we're trying to understand life. We're trying to understand Hashem. You know, you know how complex the human being is? Billions of atoms and trillions of cells and connections. And I mean, you're trying to figure out something that's unfathomable. So we understand our limitation. We know our limitation. We can't figure out Hashem. But we have faith. Hashem is good. Everything He does is good. He's kind. After the fact, we have faith. We submit. We say, thank you, Hashem. We make a blessing. When a tragedy happens, we make a blessing. A blessing. The ultimate tragedy, death, we make a blessing. We bless Hashem. That's faith. Of course we have faith. But before the fact, then we storm heaven and earth. We don't leave any stone unturned. We will do anything in our power. Prayer, tzedakah, charity, teshuva, fasting. Whatever it takes to, to get it to change. We want things to be tangibly good. And the same is with exile. Exile is intolerable. There's an urgency. We have to bring this exile to an end with all the explanations. And every day that passes and every moment, Hashem is preparing for us and cooking for us something that's unbelievable. <laughs> but we can't wait anymore. We, we're plotting already. We're asking Hashem, enough already, enough. And now it's, Hashem is waiting for us to scream, Oi! He's waiting for that, Oi! <laughs> enough with the sophisticated Hebrew friend. She is speaking mamalosh and speak simple. Oi, Hashem, I can't take it anymore. Please, have Rachmanus. Oh, now the baby is ready to be born. Now Mashiach is ready to come.